November 2nd, 1870, 12 miles north of Abilene, Kansas. Respected lawman T.J. Smith, nicknamed Bear River Smith, is brutally murdered while serving an arrest warrant for murder. The desperados responsible, Andrew McConnell and Moses Miles, flee on horseback. Hi, listeners. Welcome back to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murder. Host may hurt listeners' feelings, give unsolicited advice, and be judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA. And no, I do not currently reside in any of our prisons. Also, I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or psychology. I'm just a true crime fan who researches murders and tries to be accurate so I can share what interests me with you. Opinions expressed on this podcast are not professional ones. Okay, enough talking about other stuff. Let's talk about murder. In the fall of 1870, John Shea, 36, lives with his wife Bridget, 30, on a little farm some miles north of Abilene, Kansas. Abilene is located in central Kansas, maybe an hour's drive west of Topeka. John and Bridget, both Irish immigrants, have two children, Mary three and Matthew two. Some accounts say that John had three children. Only Mary and Matthew are listed in the 1870 census, so maybe Bridget is pregnant with their third child. A hired hand also from Ireland, Alfred McCumber, lives with them. 1870 is just a few years after the war between the states, and the U.S. government is offering free land out west to people who are willing to farm the land. That is what the Shays and many other immigrants are doing out there in the middle of Kansas near Abilene. Pioneers like this are called homesteaders. They claim a piece of land, usually 160 acres, 
work it for five years, and then they own it outright. It was a hard life. Unlike farther east, there aren't many trees in Kansas, so building a log cabin isn't feasible. Most settlers build dugout houses to live in. That's just like it sounds. Dig into the side of a little hill and then use tough sections of prairie sod to make walls and roofs. Pretty primitive living conditions, but I've read some pioneer women's diaries that say the dugouts could be surprisingly cozy. On the Kansas Plains, it gets very hot in the summer and very cold in the winter, with the wind blowing all the time. So the little homes are a tolerable solution to the problem of trying to stay comfortable in that harsh environment. Most homesteaders are willing to tough it out to build new lives for themselves and their families. Two neighbors of the Shays are Andrew McConnell and Moses Miles. According to the census records for 1870, they are both 35. McConnell born in Scotland and Miles born in Massachusetts. By all accounts, McConnell and Miles are very rough characters. They are also homesteaders, each with their own land, but sharing a dugout. From the October 29, 1870 account in the Topeka Commonwealth newspaper, quote, A fatal affray occurred on Chapman's Creek last Sunday. John Shea was driving some cattle across the land owned by Andrew McConnell when some dispute arose about the matter. Shea drew a pistol and snapped it at McConnell twice. When the latter raised his gun, he had been hunting and shot Shea dead. McConnell gave himself up, but was discharged, unquote. Okay, if we believe Andrew McConnell, John's death on October 23rd is a case of self-defense. There aren't any other accounts of the incident that I could find, except that at some point, Moses Mile backs up what McConnell says. The authorities let McConnell go about his business. I couldn't find any court records, and the newspapers were vague about this, so I can only speculate. One newspaper story says that the Justice of the Peace, Mr. Davidson, was the official who let McConnell go. In a later paper, there is an outraged letter from a Mr. A.S. Davidson defending this. Quote, It would have been an unusual action on my part to have committed McConnell to prison when there was no evidence against him. Unquote. So at least at first, everyone buys the self-defense story. Then within about a week, something changes. I'm not sure what that was. This is the 1870s, so 
no test results from DNA. My best guess is that there's long-standing bad blood between Shay and McConnell. And neighbors have heard McConnell threaten Shay. Something like, if you come on my land one more time, I'll shoot you. Or maybe McConnell and Miles have been bragging about getting away with murder. At any rate, a warrant for murder is issued against McConnell. According to one source, the Dickinson County Sheriff J.H. Kramer and Deputy James McDonald make the first attempt to arrest McConnell out at his dugout. Met with a hail of bullets, they retreat. I only saw this account once, but it may have some validity. There is a little newspaper item earlier in the year that reports Sheriff Kramer is ill and having difficulty discharging his duties. Maybe that has something to do with what ends up happening. T.J. Smith is appointed by the Abilene Town Council to be the city police chief. In the newspaper articles, he is known variously as Sheriff Smith and Marshal Smith and Deputy Smith and Chief Smith and even Officer Smith. Um, So it's a little confusing. Typically, sheriffs are elected officials. Sheriff Kramer is the elected sheriff of Dickinson County, where the city of Abilene is. Marshals are usually appointed. That's T.J. Smith. His jurisdiction is the town of Abilene. There are U.S. Marshals who are federal government agents, just like now. They would have a more wide-ranging area of jurisdiction, but usually only in federal matters of some kind. James McDonald is a county sheriff's deputy. He recruits Smith to help serve the murder warrant. So Kramer deputizes Smith, making him a deputy sheriff at the time. I think that's it, but I know it's still confusing. On November 2nd, 1870, deputies Thomas James, nicknamed Bear River Smith, and James McDonald set off for the McConnell homestead, located about 12 miles northeast of Abilene. Listeners, this story is close to my heart. I grew up watching westerns in the 50s and 60s. Lawmen of the Old West were my heroes. In my opinion, the best western on TV was Gunsmoke, about Marshal Matt Dillon, who kept the peace in Dodge City, Kansas. Before it was on TV, Gunsmoke was a great radio drama. I vaguely remember listening to it as a kid. It would start out with a gravelly-voiced William Conrad, the actor who played Matt Dillon on the radio. James Arness was the star of the TV show. He'd say, quote, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal, 
the first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely, unquote. Those shows are on a couple of podcasts you can listen to um, if you just search for Gunsmoke. Now, Matt Dillon is a fictional character, but our hero, Thomas James, nicknamed Bear River Smith, is a real person. The exploits of even real-life Old West lawmen um, like Wyatt Earp, Wild Bill Hickok, are greatly romanticized. Honestly, a lot of what we think we know about these men is just made up. Sadly, some frontier sheriffs and marshals were little better than the bad guys they were supposed to police. However, that is not the case with Abilene Police Chief Thomas J. Smith. He is the real deal. Listeners, full disclosure, he's also very handsome. His picture reminds me of a young Sam Elliott. So I have to admit to a little bit of a crush on him. When I did the podcast post out on the website, I put his picture out there so you can all see it. There are a number of websites with information about Smith's life. There is conflicting information out there, and some of them tell slightly different variations on the same story. Um, I tried to verify as much as I could, mainly using historical newspapers and genealogy records. Unfortunately, Thomas Smith and the other names in this story are very common names. So information about much of their lives is probably lost to time. According to accounts from his contemporaries, Smith started his career in law enforcement as a New York City cop. There is a record of Smith in the 1870 census of Abilene. It lists T.J. Smith, age 40, police chief of Abilene, born New York. He's boarding with a farm family. About that age of 40, um, there are sources that list Smith's birthday as 12 June, 1830. And 12 June, 1840. So 10 years difference. I couldn't pin down where that date comes from. 12 June is pretty specific, so I would assume it's on a document somewhere, but I couldn't find it. So which is it? 1830 or 1840? Is he 30 or 40 in 1870? Not sure. I do have a lot of experience doing genealogy work using census records, and I will say that they are not always accurate. Sometimes the problem is with the census taker. They just write things down wrong. Other times, 
I think the problem is with the people giving the information. Either they don't know where or when they were born, or how to spell their names, or they just make stuff up. Maybe Smith told the census taker, I was born in 1840, and the census taker had a little brain cramp and wrote down age 40. Smith's tombstone in Abilene doesn't have a birth date. I'll stop agonizing over this. Um, If I have to guess, I think he's only 30. His history in the Old West just goes back a few years. And looking at his picture, he doesn't look 40 to me. He looks younger. So I'm going to go with 30 years old. Anyway, Thomas James Smith is of Irish descent, red-headed, gray-eyed, 5 foot 11, 180 centimeters, 170 pounds or 77 kilos or 12 stone. So not a huge guy, but very physically fit and an expert boxer. Legend has it that T.J. Smith is a dedicated New York cop until a tragic incident when he accidentally shoots and kills a 14-year-old boy while chasing a thief. The event has a profound effect on him. Of course, nowadays we recognize this effect and how serious it is. In the U.S., a law enforcement officer involved in a shooting will almost always be put on desk duty for a while and be required to receive lots of therapy. It's not uncommon for these law enforcement personnel to leave law enforcement after an incident like this. And that's what Smith does. He quits being a cop and goes out west to work on building the railroads for the Union Pacific Railroad. However, his heart is still in law enforcement. Apparently, as he works on the railroad, living in disorderly, violent railroad camps out west, he is often called in to keep the peace. As a result of what happened in New York, he doesn't like to use guns, but his skill as a boxer is usually enough. It's said that he can punch so fast and so hard that he can knock out a bad guy before he can even get his gun out. Smith gets the nickname Bear River from a terrible incident in Bear River, Wyoming. Bear River is a railroad boomtown with a wild population of railroad workers, lumberjacks, miners, and various hangers-on. There is a murder there. Depending on what you read, a railroad worker is murdered. His friends lynch the murderer, or it might be a railroad guy murdered somebody and his friends 
try to keep him from getting lynched. Not sure. Whatever happened, it results in a huge riot. Troops from Fort Bridger, Wyoming, have to be brought in to put down the riot. Unfortunately, the whole town ends up in flames. At least according to legend, although there are other stories, T.J. Smith doesn't really pick a side in the riot, but he was instrumental in defending law-abiding citizens from the rioters. There is a story that he might have been on the side of the rioters and even went to prison for his part in the incident. I only saw that in one place, and I choose not to believe it. Abilene Mayor T.C. Henry, when asked about it years later, said that he really didn't know much about Bear River, but he did know that whatever part Smith played, it was an honorable part. After that, Smith is a town marshal out west for a while, When the Abilene Sheriff's job is advertised, he is working in Kit Carson, Colorado. Kit Carson is in eastern Colorado, out in the flatlands, away from the mountains, not far from the western border of Kansas. Smith applies for the job and even gets an interview, but Mayor Henry isn't sure he's up to the job. Instead, he hires two burly veteran St. Louis cops. They barely make it off the train in Abilene when they are met by a group of rowdy, gun-toting cowboys who quickly run them out of town. Abilene, Kansas was founded in 1858 by homesteaders. The story goes that Mrs. Timothy Hersey decided to find a name for the new town in the Bible. She opened the family Bible at random and read from Luke 3 about the Tetrarch of Abilene. Scholars believe that Abilene refers to a plain near Damascus. There's also an Abilene, Texas, but not founded until 1883. It's named after Abilene, Kansas. Abilene, Texas is a big town in central Texas now, over 100,000 people. Abilene, Kansas, on the other hand, is still a small town, about 7,000 people. Abilene, Kansas is tiny until the 1860s when the Kansas Pacific Railroad comes through. Abilene, Kansas becomes the major point for shipping cattle driven up from Texas to cities back east. An entrepreneur named Joseph G. McCoy saw Abilene as the perfect place to put a huge stockyard. He saw the place as the transition for cattle coming up from Texas waiting to be put on railroad cars for shipment back east. He builds a stockyard and a large hotel to house cowboys coming in off the trail. By 1870, the town has grown tenfold to over 3,000 people. If you've ever watched a Western about a cattle drive, Abilene is probably the place the cowboys drove their herds to. It was the end of the famous Chisholm Trail. This brings its own set of problems. 
rowdy cowboys, saloons, gambling dens, and brothels. Abilene quickly goes from a sleepy little town to a lawless frontier cow town. The violence soon becomes intolerable for the citizens. The city's first mayor, Theodore C. Henry, feels the pressure to do something about the violence. The city council passes a firearm ordinance requiring cowboys to turn in their guns at City Hall. The ordinance is little more than a joke. When the notices about it are posted in town, they are soon shot full of bullet holes. Dick Taylor describes the situation in a good article about Tom Smith that I found on www.com kansas call k-a-n-s-a-s dot c-o-l-l i'm thinking maybe collection dot org quote just as joseph g mccoy had planned the 1870 beef trade that the visionary entrepreneur had invited up from texas was prospering his stockyard business at Abilene, Kansas, which had become the northern terminus of those long cattle drives. Arriving herds were staged in McCoy's feedlots until they were ready to be shipped to Kansas City slaughterhouses. But out-of-state cowboys bringing the bovine to Abilene became very disruptive to the city. Beginning back in 1867, the hard-bitten drovers from Texas had regularly escorted cantankerous longhorns up the Chisholm Trail to be loaded into eastbound cattle cars on a siding of the Kansas Pacific Railroad. And immediately afterward, the weary cowpunchers would invigorate the economy of the accommodating Kansas town with a wild splurge of pleasure-seeking. While some merchants enticed the rambunctious visitors to waste their latest earnings on local attractions, the city had gone through two years of terror generated by shooting and shouting ruffians invading from distant localities. Exhibiting a defiant brashness, the alien cowboys openly taunted the administrators of local city government. Unquote. At his wit's end, Mayor Henry decides to take a chance on the unassuming marshal from Kit Carson. In June 1870, he swears in Thomas James Smith as police chief of Abilene, Kansas. His salary is $150 a month. That's not a bad salary for those days, unless you consider the likelihood of death on the job, which is very high. $150 is about $3,000 in today's money. Smith quickly sets about the job of enforcing the no-guns-in-town policy. To most observers, this seems an impossible job, especially 
for a quiet, not very large man like T.J. Smith, who, by the way, has a distaste for guns and rarely carries one. Even Mayor Henry is not very optimistic. Smith tells him that the combination of guns and alcohol is impossible to control. Quote, as well contend with frenzied maniac as with an armed drunken cowboy. Unquote. As Henry tells it years later, quote, his logic was well grounded, but the images of the obliterated ordnance placards that had been used for targets were equally impressed. Besides, my recent study of cowboy nature and training had matured convictions in my mind respecting the inherent difficulty of determining whether a cowboy and his gun were separable elements, even under normal conditions. Unquote. Still, he pins a badge on Smith and sends him off to enforce the law. On the streets of Abilene, Smith soon runs up against Big Hank, a drunken lout who profanely refuses to surrender his gun. Instead of backing away from the thug, Smith moves in closer to Big Hank and asks him again to give up his gun. As Hank laughs in his face and maybe even reaches for his gun, Smith lands a devastating lightning punch to his jaw, which knocks the cowboy out. Then Smith quietly picks up his gun. News of this incident spreads like wildfire through the ranks of cowboys in Abilene. Another big burly tough guy called Wyoming Frank brags all over town that no lawman is going to take his gun. He openly challenges Smith to come and get his weapons. The next day at a local saloon, Frank makes fun of Smith, saying that he, quote, reckons that he had lighted out, unquote. And it takes Smith a good while to show up outside the saloon. Good strategy, because Wyoming Frank just keeps on getting drunker and drunker. When he comes out, he has his gun out and refuses to give it up. Smith advances on him, which is what Frank thinks he wants the sheriff to do. He wants to get him into the saloon where a bunch of his friends are. He doesn't realize that that is Smith's plan, too. To punch Frank's lights out, he needs to get close. Plus, other people are going to be less inclined to start shooting in a crowded room where they might get shot themselves. Smith's plan works. He knocks Wyoming Frank down and takes his gun. Then, at least according to reports, the owner of the saloon gives Smith his gun, saying, quote, that was the nerviest act I ever saw. You did your duty, and that coward got what he deserved. Here is my gun. Reckon I'll not need it as long as you are marshal of this town. 
unquote. Everybody in the saloon follows suit. Doesn't take long for word to get around, and it becomes the custom in town, even among the worst cowboys, to check their guns with the saloon keeper when they come to town. The citizens of Abilene breathe a sigh of relief. And I think really the cowboys do too. Even the worst bad guy likes to not have to worry about getting shot all the time. There's still violence and crime in town. It's still a pretty rough, wide-open town, but at least things are looking up. After getting most of the guns off the streets, Smith takes up another cause that gains the respect of the hard-bitten cowboys. Horse thieves are a serious problem in the Old West. It's not uncommon in the 1800s for horse thieves to be lynched. Not legally, but it happened. When I was little, I remember wondering why horse thief was such a big deal. My grandfather, a Central Texas farmer, explained that back in the olden days, a man's horse could be life and death to him. So, when a bunch of horses are taken in Abilene, Marshall Smith sets off on his own on his beautiful horse named Silverheels to recover the stolen animals, even though he's going way out of his jurisdiction, all the way up to Nebraska. He finds what he's looking for in Pawnee City, Nebraska, just over the border with Kansas. However, Pawnee City isn't having much to do with the Kansas lawman. One of the thieves is the son of a prominent citizen, so Pawnee City isn't interested in prosecuting anybody just because some Kansas sheriff wants them to. Still, they let Smith take the stolen horses back to their owners, and that makes him even more of a local hero in Abilene. Then Marshall Smith turns his attention to the red light district of Abilene. This was a collection of pretty rough brothels and gambling dens, and the area was prone to a lot of robberies and violence. In September 1870, there was a serious incident at one of the brothels. The owner sends for the town marshal, Marshal Smith, saying there has been a murder at his place. Really, this is part of a plan to ambush Smith. It's true that more often than not, Smith gets the better of bad guys with his fists, but he does carry firearms when necessary. Just a few weeks into his tenure as police chief, the Grateful City votes to give him a raise, and the citizens prevent, pre present him with his own set of pearl-handed revolvers, which he proudly wears sometimes. To go out to the brothel and investigate, Smith does take a gun. However, he really isn't expecting an assassination attempt at first, but 
he soon realizes that that's what's going on. He ends up having to fight for his life and fire his weapons. Bullets are flying everywhere in the close quarters of the brothel. Miraculously, he comes out unscathed and very angry. It's reported in the Abilene Chronicle, September 8, 1870. Smith ordered the vile characters to, quote, close their dens or suffer the consequences, unquote. Soon the houses of ill fame close up shop and all the prostitutes are on the next train out of town. Abilene enjoys its hard-won peace, at least for a while, and Marshall Smith becomes the most respected, beloved man in town. Sadly, on November 2, 1870, on a lonely, windswept prairie, the brave lawman's provident protection will desert him. There are accounts of what happened on that fateful day to Marshall Smith in the newspapers of the day. They do differ. I'll read you a couple just to give you an idea. The first report of the murder wired to area newspapers reads as follows. This is from the Lawrence Daily Kansas Commonwealth. Intelligence was received last evening of the brutal murder at Abilene yesterday afternoon of Deputy United States Marshal Tom Smith. Smith, accompanied by Officer McDonald, went out to arrest a Scotchman named McConnell who lived in a dugout about 12 miles northeast of town. McConnell had murdered a man named Shay about a week ago. Just as Smith was entering the dugout to effect the arrest, McConnell shot him in the head, but did not kill him. The desperado then picked up an axe and cut Smith's head almost off. The body was brought into town last evening. Whether McConnell was arrested or not was not stated. Smith was well known to citizens of this town who state him to have been a good officer, an excellent citizen, and universally respected wherever known. If the murderer is not caught and lynched forthwith, it will be a disgrace to the locality. Listeners, lynching is definitely a thing in Frontier, Kansas. It's not unusual for newspapers to call for lynchings in heinous murder cases. It was definitely a different time. This is the story told by McDonald, the deputy, to the Junction City Union newspaper, on November 5th, 1870. They arrived at McConnell's claim and found himself 
a man named Miles and another individual sitting in the dugout. Smith inquired for McConnell, who answered promptly. McConnell was sitting down and had a gun between his knees. Upon Smith's telling him that he was a prisoner, McConnell fired at Smith. A scuffle ensued, the man Miles and his companion taking part. This action called McDonald to the field, and he interfered, shooting Miles' companion. Name unknown. McDonald's attention was next given to Miles, who was a person of great physical strength. When McConnell saw that Smith was killed, the combined efforts of men turned toward McDonald, who, using his weapon, succeeded in wounding Miles in three places, himself being shot through his hat and receiving a ball in his vest, which fortunately struck a pocketbook and then stopped. The two men, McConnell and Miles, succeeded in getting hold of the horses Smith and Deputy McDonald had and started off. McDonald roused the neighbors as soon as possible and pursuit was given. The two men exchanged horses in some way and returned again to the dugout where their fiendish work was completed by severing Smith's head entirely from his body. Wednesday night, about 10 o'clock, they arrived at this place when their wounds were dressed. Miles had two fingers on one hand shot off, which was noticeable. The absence at that hour of any of the particulars of the murder did not cause a lookout for parties committing the same. But as soon as the midnight train came down, the facts became noised around and parties are now out scouring the country. Okay, so in the first report, there is no mention of Moses Miles. McConnell did everything and then fled. Also, you might notice no mention at all of what was going on with Deputy McDonald while the murder was happening. In the second report, there are three men at the dugout, McConnell, Miles, and Mr. Unknown. McDonald is involved in the scuffle, even wounding Miles. Then McConnell and Miles take the deputy's horses and ride off. McDonald goes for help. Then McConnell and Miles come back, not sure what happened to the third guy, with different horses and cut off Smith's head for some reason. They go to town, and then they flee. Yeah, well, in my opinion, the first account is much closer to the truth than this second. Imagine you're reading the first dispatch in your parlor in 1870, Kansas. It's believable that McConnell could shoot Smith before either of the deputies can react. But then, quote, the desperado then picked up an axe and cut Smith's head off, almost, unquote. 
This can be happening inside. The dugout is very small. And why would there be an axe inside? It would be outside with the wood pile. So either the deputy just stands there while McConnell decapitates Smith, or he flees the scene. Neither possibility does McDonald much credit as a lawman. In fact, his reputation does suffer from this. He goes on to be a decent lawman, but he always has to live under a cloud as the coward who deserted Marshall Smith while he was under attack. I suspect the source of the second report with the three men and changing horses and all that stuff is from Deputy McDonald trying to make himself sound better. Better. Um, this is the only mention that I could find of another man besides McConnell and Miles at the scene. So there aren't three men. And the story that they took off on one set of horses and came back with another just to cut off Smith's head, that's ridiculous. This is what I think happened. Deputy Smith and McDonald set out for the McConnell place, murder warrant in hand. Surely they were expecting trouble. They find it. The murderer, Andrew McConnell, is inside his dugout, rifle in hand, waiting for the lawman. His associate, Moses Miles, a large man, is outside the dugout, probably chopping wood or something when they ride up. Marshall Smith is used to intimidating people. He fully expects to do that with McConnell. He'll just talk with McConnell, and if he won't come peaceably, he'll punch his lights out. He does that all the time. Plus, he's got McDonald there for backup. So honestly, I think on that fateful day, our hero may have been a little overconfident. McConnell draws Smith into the dugout somehow. There is a very good PBS documentary on the life and death of Tom Smith. I'll give the details in the wrap-up for this episode. It's definitely worth a watch. The reenactment of the murder shows Smith going into the dugout with warrant in hand to read it to McConnell. There is a legal requirement for law enforcement to announce what's in the warrant, so that makes sense. The documentary also makes the point that this puts Smith at a great disadvantage going from outside into the darkened dugout and then having to look at a paper instead of at McConnell. That all seems very likely to me. Caught unawares, Smith is shot. 
Now, not in the head, like it says in the story, but in his lung. And it is a fatal shot. But Smith is still able to fight back. He gets McConnell outside the dugout and is beating on him when Miles intervenes and then finishes the job with an axe. So, what about McDonald? He is outside watching Moses Miles, probably still mounted on his horse. I would expect Miles to have a gun handy, either a sidearm or a rifle, but maybe not. For whatever reason, I assume McDonald isn't holding a gun on him. Otherwise, he would have shot him when McConnell shot Smith. He probably should have been holding a gun on Miles, but I don't think he was. I don't think he expected McConnell to just up and shoot Smith either. My best guess about his reaction is that he froze when he heard the shot. McConnell and Smith come crashing out of the dugout. Miles jumps in to finish Smith off. McDonald panics and flees the scene. McConnell and Miles take off for parts unknown. A sad end for a dedicated man of the law. As Mayor Henry says, quote, with the tip of his hat, and a smile. Smith rode away, fated to be his last ride. He took over the writ from the deputy, and his attempt to serve it ended in the tragedy that closed the career of that generous soul, that brave and dauntless officer. He was shot dead. The mission which cost him his life was prompted by motives of friendship for the deputy. The impulse to share where danger lurked led to his own sacrifice, unswerving loyalty to his friends and fearless devotion to duty. Twin characteristics throughout his life, unhappily made for his martyrdom." Unquote. Listeners, this is a fairly straightforward case. I don't have much wild speculation. Is it possible that McConnell didn't murder John Shea? That he actually shot him in self-defense? It's possible. Life on the prairie is stressful and violent. Men are quick to point guns to settle arguments. So on October 23rd, 1870, for some reason, John Shea drives his cattle across Andrew McConnell's land. All kinds of things could be going on there. But I have a feeling it was just that some of Shea's cows strayed onto McConnell's property and Shea was rounding them up. But this kind of thing can cause trouble between neighbors. There's a reason for the old saying, 
good fences make good neighbors. When McConnell sees this while he's out hunting, he's enraged and he confronts Shay. When Shay sees McConnell with his hunting rifle coming at him, it would be natural for Shay to point his weapon. So things get out of hand. I can see that happening. It's easy to see why the Justice of the Peace was happy to call Shay's death self-defense. What argues against this is the quick turnaround and the murder warrant. I think there's a history of violence that neighbors have seen between McConnell and Miles. That's what tips me against McConnell. I think he lost it and murdered Shay. He's never prosecuted for this murder, but I think he should have been. Marshall Smith was on an errand for justice that needed to happen. I've already said what I think and everybody else thinks happened with Smith's murder, but I can come up with other scenarios, wild speculation, if you will. Suppose it's really another hit on the marshal, maybe arranged by criminals in Abilene. They certainly hate him, and he's very bad for business. They've already tried to arrange one assassination at the brothel. Why not try to come up with something else? Or even wilder speculation. Maybe there's a jealous romantic rival of Marshall Smith's. I've said he is a very handsome man and single. I would imagine he set many women's hearts aflutter in Abilene. Maybe even Deputy McDonald's wife? McDonald lures him out to McConnell's, shoots him, and blames it on McConnell's and Miles. Anything's possible, right? But then he'd probably shoot McConnell and Miles too just to make sure the crime was perfect. So, no. Um, McConnell simply doesn't want to go on trial for murder. He might get hanged. And poor Deputy McDonald's not guilty of anything but bad judgment and understandable panic. If I had a time machine, I'd go back to 1870 Abilene and warn Marshall Smith, take a posse with you. Then the law enforcement career of a true American hero wouldn't have ended so soon. There is a large, somber funeral for Marshall Smith and Abilene. Hundreds, including many hard-bitten cowboys, pay their respects. McConnell and Miles are soon captured. They are taken back to Abilene, where the sentiment to hang them immediately runs high. 
Again, with my time machine, I'd arrange for that to happen. No, no, that would be wrong. They aren't lynched, but they are moved to a jail in Manhattan, Kansas, where they are tried in March 1871. I could find almost nothing on their trials except the outcomes. McConnell pleads guilty to first-degree manslaughter and is sentenced to 12 years of hard labor. Miles is convicted of second-degree murder and gets 16 years. Listeners, I was astonished to read that. I always think of justice in the Old West as swift, sure, and hard. I expected Miles and McConnell to be summarily tried and then hung. Today, killing a police officer like they did would get you the death penalty in Kansas. I really have no explanation. To me, it's just inexplicable. The murderers are sent to the state penitentiary in Lansing. As I've said, the Leavenworth, Kansas area is the location of several prisons. Lansing, Kansas borders Leavenworth on the south. Lansing Correctional Facility, a state prison, is still there. It's now called LCF for short. In the past, LCF was called the Kansas State Prison, KSP. If you've seen In Cold Blood, it's that grim-looking prison in the movie. In 1871, Lansing State Prison is brand new, but it's not a nice place to be. Hard labor means exactly that in those days. However, according to reports, both men served their sentences and get out. Miles would only be 51 and McConnell only 47. They were completely reformed and went on to live exemplary lives, trying to atone for taking the lives of two good men. No, I don't think that happened. I doubt prison did the two much good at all. My guess is they were even more crazy and violent when they got out of prison than they were when they went in. However, I don't really know what happened to them. Those are pretty common names, so looking for likely candidates to be them after prison is like looking for a needle in a haystack. Same with the Shays. Bridget and Matthew and Mary, I honestly have no idea where they went or what happened to them. And I think maybe Miles and McConnell might change their names. In their shoes, I would change my name and get as far away from Kansas as I could. Marshall Smith's successor was none other than the famous Wild Bill Hickok, who was not nearly as good at his job as Thomas J. Smith. 
Smith is less famous, but he was a much better lawman. While Smith was quiet, well-mannered, and didn't drink or smoke or gamble or carouse with prostitutes, Hickok was the opposite, doing all those things, indulging in all manner of vices. Hickok ends up being fired in Abilene after just a few months, mainly for accidentally shooting and killing one of his own deputies in a gunfight. The most famous citizen of Abilene, Kansas, is Dwight D. Eisenhower, the commander of American forces in Europe during World War II and later president of the United States in the 50s. He was actually born in Texas, but his family moved to Abilene, Kansas when he was just a baby. So he considered Abilene, Kansas, where he was raised, to be his hometown. Marshall Smith was his boyhood hero. When he visited Abilene, he always paid his respects to Smith at his grave. Quote, According to the legends of my hometown, Smith was anything but dull. While he almost never carried a pistol, he subdued the lawless by force of his personality and his tremendous capability as an athlete. One blow of his fist was apparently enough to knock out the ordinary tough cowboy." Unquote. In 1965, future U.S. President Ronald Reagan paid tribute to Smith in his own way, portraying the marshal in an episode of the Western series Death Valley Days entitled No Gun Behind His Badge. 1965 was the last year of Reagan's acting career. He was elected governor of California the next year, beginning his stellar political career. The only grave I could find for any of our main characters in this case was for Marshall Smith in Abilene. In 1899, the citizens raised money to build a monument for him. It's on www.findagrave.com if you would like to send him a virtual flower. His tombstone reads, quote, Thomas J. Smith, Marshal of Abilene, 1870, died a martyr to duty, November 2nd, 1870, a fearless hero of frontier days, who in cowboy chaos established the supremacy of law. Unquote. Listeners, the links to the sources used for this case are listed in the show notes. There are lots of them. There's a very good book called Abilene Lawmen by Larry Underwood, available on Amazon. I really like the way it paints a picture of frontier life in Kansas cow towns like Abilene. There's also an episode of American Lawmen called The Two-Fisted Marshal of Abilene on PBS 
that reenacts the events of this case. There's a copy of the episode on YouTube. If you don't mind looking at ads, breaking it up every five minutes. If you Google Thomas Smith Abilene, there are several websites with stories about his life and death. There are a couple that I really enjoyed reading. Um, www.truewestmagazine.com and www.legendsofamerica.com. The primary newspapers that had relevant articles were the Abilene Chronicle, now the Reflector Chronicle, and the Topeka Journal Commonwealth, which was bought out by the current Topeka paper, the Capital Journal. Finally, as always, I googled and wikied and went through genealogy sites. Okay, I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to Prison City Murders and write a review. Even critical feedback is appreciated. You can email me at prisoncitymurders at gmail.com or comment on the cases on the podcast website prisoncitymurders.blubrry.net. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars.